Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. So, this week, we are coming to you from my home office in Los Angeles, about a week into self-isolation. We figured now is as good a time as any to look back at some of our favorite Bullseye interviews. So, a 2018 conversation with the great Boots Riley. Boots is hands down one of the most interesting people making art today. Among other things, he's the front man of The Coup, one of my favorite rap groups of all time. The Coup make straightforward music. The beats never had a lot of frills. Boots, when he raps, does so plainly. But the central element of The Coup is its message. Boots told stories when he rapped, painted pictures from his real life. He talked about social justice and poverty and racism. A lot of hip-hop is about prosperity, overcoming a system that's been rigged against you for centuries. Success stories, in other words. The coup with Boots as the front man want to throw the system out entirely. This is my resume slash resignation, a ransom note with proposed legislation. A fever ultimatum, you should take it verbatim, cause I got two banging pieces and you don't want to date them flying kites. About eight years ago, Boots started working on a movie something he'd never really done before. He started telling friends about it, asking acquaintances in the industry for advice. Sometimes he'd just corner a movie producer for 15 minutes. He wrote a screenplay, and thanks to a combination of audacity, determination, and luck, he actually made the movie. It's called Sorry to Bother You. It's set in Oakland, in a kind of alternate reality. Lakeith Stanfield is the star. He plays Cassius Green, a black man who gets a gig doing telemarketing. And it's in that job that he finds the key to success. Do a dead-on impression of a white dude, and magically, people listen when you call. From that point forth, it gets weirder, much weirder. If you've seen Sorry to Bother You, you know what I mean. But if you haven't, I don't want to spoil anything for you. I'll just say that it has elements of sci-fi and horror and more. But it's great. It's an instant classic. Let's take a listen to a little bit from the beginning of the movie here. Cassius is just getting started in telemarketing, and he can't seem to get the time of day on the phone. And in this scene, he gets some advice from a veteran co-worker, played by Danny Glover. Well, you don't talk white enough. I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. Why is this proper? I'm talking about the real deal. Okay, so like... Hello, Mr. Everett. Cassius Green here. Sorry to bother you. you. You got it wrong. I'm not talking about sounding all nasal. It's like sounding like you don't have a care. Got your bills paid. You're happy about your future. You're about ready to jump in your Ferrari out there after you get off this call. Put some real breath in there. Breezy, like, I don't really need this money. You've never been fired. (laughs) Only laid off. It's not really a white voice. It's what they wish they sounded like. So it's like what they think they're supposed to sound like. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer, this is Langston from Regal View. I didn't catch you at the wrong time, did I? Boots Riley, welcome back to the show. It's nice to see you. <laughs> Good seeing you too, man. I feel like the last time you were on the show, it was, um, I think it was a live show in San Francisco. And... 
that was a long time ago. Yeah. I'll say six or seven years ago anyway. And you were working on this movie. Yep. This yep. was like, <laughs> um, why, why did you th- even think? How did you get the temerity to think that you, a grown man with a full career in another field, you know, a 20-year, 25-year career in another field, could change lanes like this? Uh, Well, I guess it's because when I decided I was going to rap, I didn't know how to rap either. You but know. I mean, the difference, the difference is like when you decide, when you decided you were, you were going to rap, you were 17 or whatever, or 15. No, I was like, yeah, 19 or 20 or yeah, something so like every, that. Everybody thinks they can do everything when they're 19. <laughs> I still think I can do everything, <laughs> but I don't think I have the time to figure it out for everything. But yeah, I, I, I think because of that career, th- the idea that I know that there are steps to figure out with how to do things, um, I've done things that are hard before, you know, so uh, I, I knew this. But I also I, I started out in film school before I was known as uh, a musician. Uh, I went to San Francisco State, but we got a record deal in the middle of that. And so I was out of there quick. Shout out to all the Golden Gators out there. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And, and so it was probably easier for me having done a career in art and also, you know, I've been around music video sets. I know people who've made films in different ways. And so being an artist has made me honest with myself about my strengths and weaknesses and honest with myself about what I do know and what I don't know. So I was able to identify those things and go out and find it and meet Guillermo del Toro at a uh, luncheon and corner him and hound him until he gave me all the information I needed or uh, to uh, get David Gordon Green to be a mentor and let me shadow him on when, when he went and shot stuff. So, you know, when you, if someone that has built a house tells you they're going to build a boat, you'll believe them because they actually did something they said they were going to do. And so that helped me. That's interesting. I, you know, I was thinking about the beginning of the coup's career and... You know, I, I, I caught on as a teenager a few years in. You already had a record deal and stuff. Um, but when you got a record deal, it was basically the only time in the history of hip hop that lots of artists from the Bay Area, lots of urban music artists from the Bay Area were getting big record deals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were in the right place at the right time. It was like MC Hammer had happened. MC Hammer had changed the face of hip hop mm-hmm. coming from Oakland. And, digital underground yeah, was a and exactly. big part and the, of that they had a, Exactly. And there was it, there was digital underground, short. there was too short, there was these other kind of corollary things. And and what the thing about business, especially entertainment and the music business is people are not creative, so they're like this worked. We don't know what the hell happened, but we do know that these three groups were from Oakland. So, got any more Oakland groups? I think a lot about this uh, novelty record by the country 
novelty band Riders in the Sky, who are like a band that you would, they're very lovely and charming, but they're like a band you would see at a state fair uh-huh. uh, and, or maybe on a Prairie Home Companion or something. And I, I had this tape of theirs as a kid that had this running joke where somebody would say, has it been done before? And the other guy would say, yeah, sure, millions of times. And then uh, the business guy would say, great, we know it works. <laughs> um, and like, but what's what's wild about it to me is that um, you know, you certainly couldn't have been more divergent aesthetically from Hammer. Yeah. I oh, mean, yeah. I I like Hammer. I have no no beef with Hammer. Yeah. But like, we were very different from everybody. I mean, we I think our first review that came out was by Danielle Smith, who then went on to be the editor of Essence, but then was just writing for the Bay Guardian, and um, she was like, "Sounds like Boots Riley is trying to find his style." And I think you could apply that to everything I do right now. And uh, and and what she meant by that was there was no place to plug us in. Like, oh, you like this group? You'll love this. You'll love the coup. It was hard to do that. And it was only because Stu Fine at Wild Pitch was is a crazy dude. And <laughs> he's, he may or may not have been able to capitalize to the best of his abilities on these groups that he signed, but he signed some amazing groups like Gangstar and uh, Main Source and, uh, you know, all these groups that other rappers love but may not have, you know, while they were on Wild Pitch, flourished as much. So we got found out by 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 that label and it was just kind of lucky for us let's hear one of the records this was like i mean in some ways this is one of the closest things to uh hit you had in the very early part of Mm -hmm. your career this from your second album genocide and juice from 1994 and it's called fat cat's bigger fish it's almost 10 o'clock, see I got a ball of lift for property So I slip my premium slopper And promenade out to take up a collection I got game like I read the directions I'm wishing that I had an automobile As I feel the cold wind rush past But let me think that I'm a That's a story song, it's a great story song And it seemed like you were you were very deeply committed From the beginning to that idea of narrative That's not to say that all coup songs are narrative at all yeah. right? It was relatively few no i love it's just that i love that one i wanted to be a filmmaker so the idea of being able to make someone see a film in their head while they're listening to the song was like cool this is much cheaper than making a movie so uh that that excited me um i also obviously was very influenced by uh slick rick and ice cube things like that so those were heroes and uh wanted to do that as well but yeah I, I, story has always been a big part of things to me and i think that's that's how you know as in meeting some organizers through my life growing up the really effective ones were sometimes these very long-winded people who told a lot of personal stories that made you understand the concept I mean, my my, uh, my dad was a professional organizer for most of his life, and um, he's he's still alive. He's just retired. Yeah. And 
goodness knows I went to plenty of events and protests and so on and so forth when I was a kid with him. And I think that narrative is a really essential part of organizing, not just in terms of one's own personal story, although that can be a really important part of it, but anytime you are trying to share a message, putting it in the context of a story, whether it's the story of an event, you know, I, I was just thinking of um, my dad's best friend helped organize a protest in, in favor of, or a demonstration in favor of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was a bunch of folks who were partially paralyzed, took their wheelchairs up to the, sta the stairs in front of Congress and got out of their wheelchairs and dragged themselves up the stairs, right? Mm -hmm. That's a story that they are telling. Yeah. And that's why it's uh, such a so compelling that these, you know, it's only whatever 15 people. Mhm. Mm but that's what makes it such so powerful. Yeah. It's being able to cause empathy in the person that you're talking to um which allows them to see an analysis of the world uh through your eyes and so and also just I'm just a fan of storytelling and I'm a fan of like that story has, you know, it, it starts off one way and goes a whole different direction. So I always was a fan of taking people on that journey and taking those journeys myself. You know, like Fat Cat's Big Fish, which is a story about some folks essentially getting together to rob rich people at a party. And it is, it, it is tonally, you know, this is something that you made in 25 years ago. Yeah. It totally really reminds me of Sorry to Bother You. Huh. Like there's, there's, you know, Sorry to Bother You gets more intense than Fat Cat's Bigger Fish does. Yeah. Um, it gets really intense. Yeah. Um, but it has the same kind of freewheeling satirical quality that also encompasses, um, you know, kind of recognition of real humanity. And visual stuff, too. I mean, like, in that song is one of my favorite stanzas in a hip-hop record ever, which is, I, I would leave it to you to say, because I, I'm no rapper. You'll be surprised to learn. <laughs> but uh, it, it's about the, the streetlight and the, yeah. the ground. The streetlight reflects off the piss on the ground, which reflects off the hamburger sign turning around, which reflects off the chrome of the BMW, which reflects off the fact that I'm broke. Now what the f*** is new? Right. And that is very plain. I mean, it's not like, uh, it's not fancy. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's nothing fancy about it. It's intensely visual. Dave Eggers School of Writing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, that's the thing is, I mean, painting a picture, I, I, you know, for me, it's, it's hard to talk about those things because I kind of don't know what I'm doing, you know, the whole time. I'm trying to find something to do. And the stuff that really works, I could try to break it down and be like, this is why it works. But you don't really know. You don't really, you know, you have ideas and those ideas keep you going. But, uh, you know, um, I think once I, I, I worry that once I try to start uh, qualifying exactly what I'm doing, that's when, you know, I'll get too in my head and not be able to do those things. The first time you I interviewed you for this show was I don't know by a long time ago, um, let's say fifteen years ago maybe. Okay. And 
we talked about the the rappers who influenced you. Yeah. You really talked a lot about Ice Cube. Mm-hmm. Who I think is, you know, I, it makes a lot of sense because Cube is funny and kind of plain and humane, and he's also, like, ferocious. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I thought of Too Short, who raps about completely different stuff than what you rap about most of the time, mm-hmm. but also has that kind of plain quality like it's it's declamatory you know and, what i mean and that's something it's like an announcement yeah and that's something yeah there's there's songs that we have that are influenced by some of that style and some of that is a little bit uh more of an identity thing for me because i'm in oakland so okay let me do something that's like that much like there might be a jazz uh, musician from Mexico City that's like, okay, now we're going to do, you know, something that's Ranchero style or whatever, right. you know. And, uh, the, you know, so... I it's like a piece of who you are. I mean, yeah, I, exactly. as even as a guy from San Francisco, like, I feel like there are these artists who are so deeply tied to where I'm from that they feel like a part of me. Yeah. You know, I'm like, rapping Forte went to my high school, you know what I mean? Oh, okay. Like, that's yeah, yeah, like... Yeah. It just means everything, that thing. Yeah, yeah. But what I wonder is, at the time that the coup was coming out, um, you know, Bay Area hip-hop, and especially independent Bay Area hip-hop, was moving in a much more abstract, kind of super lyrical direction. Hmm, um, really? Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of... I mean, oh, like, there was... Uh, like there was, a, there was yeah, 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 I mean, there was also, you know, there was also a lane of, you know, mob music was really flourishing at the mm-hmm. time, too. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's all this kind of high... You know, yeah, Souls yeah. and Dell and all this stuff that yeah. was super lyrical, and you never became super lyrical. Hmm. And I wonder if you ever aspi- if you ever thought, like, maybe I should make, like... Uh, maybe I should focus on like developing crazy styles. Yeah. So to me, yeah, I, yeah. Because I, to me, I think of them more as style purveyors. Right. And to me, like super lyrical is like Nas, sure, or something okay. like that, which is different. And I definitely have aspired to that. that the, the Nas sort of thing. thing. Uh, but the the hyro uh, they kind of had this style that felt really lively and yeah. um and actually got picked up a lot but it, it influenced hip-hop in more ways than people think about i was talking to andre 3000 the other day and him talking about how much souls of mischief influenced them you know and uh I just dropped a big name, but that's cool. No, that and, was like the best anecdote you possibly could have told me. Like and, you really couldn't have hit a bigger home run with that name drop in and, this room. I don't know how NPR <laughs> listeners feel about that, but yeah. and there, there, there was a big thing that came out of Oakland that influenced a lot of style. But in my head, uh, so in the movie, Cassius Green is go, go has this existential crisis that is there and 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 I'm always in the midst of that and I'm a lot of times writing my stuff thinking about people listening to it 100 years from now and although there's no way to predict how that will be looked at I am also thinking about how it's read you know so for me it's not just a uh, it's not just a, a, a an auditory thing I want to play a little bit of another great story record that you made. And this maybe is the one that 
uh, I feel the most strongly about, and it's called Me and Jesus the Pimp in a 79 Granada Last Night. And this is from uh, my guest Boots Riley's group, The Coos album that came out in 1998, Steal This Album. City lights from far away can make you drop your jaw. Sparkling light sequins on the transvestite at Mardi Gras. There's beauty in the cracks of the cement. When I was five, I hopped over them wherever we went to prevent whatever it was that could break my mama's back. Little did I know that it would roll up in a Cadillac. And matter of fact, she couldn't see him like a cataract. And on the track, she went from beautiful to battle axe. And back at home, she would cry into her pillow, vomit in the commotion. This is a story about uh, a young man whose dad gets out of jail and they go for a drive together. Um, and it's also, I mean, I think the first time I heard that song, um, I mean, 1998, so I was 17. And I think I heard it, it was right when the record, the record came out and I happened to be in this class with this guy, Ricky Vincent, who teaches at San Francisco State. Mm-hmm. Uhuru Maggot. Yeah, the Uhuru Maggot from KPFA Radio in uh, in Berkeley. And this class was not a hip hop class, but this song came out and, and he's like, this, this record just came out. You got to hear this. And I remember sitting in this class, I'm 17. I'm surrounded by college students. I'm a junior in high school. And I'm just sitting there with all of these people who are like, as far as I'm concerned, the coolest people in the world, because they're all 21. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was just crying listening to this story. And, because the story was so transporting, I, I think it took me a while f- to absorb its sort of allegorical content. Um, you know, it, it becomes a story about the young man's mother um, and his relationship with his parents. And ultimately, I don't know if songs can have spoiler alerts, Boots, but it came <laughs> no. out a long <laughs> yeah. time ago. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah uh, you don't need a spoiler alert. Ultimate, ultimately, he kills his father. Yeah. And I, I wonder what you were thinking about when you were writing that song. Honestly, this is probably one of my most like masturbatory uh, sort of things because <laughs> I was just like, I want to write a good story. I want there to be all sorts of little things that you have to catch up on. Like there's, you know, um, so it was. I think it was like prob- five years after this song came out that I talked to you about it the first time, and yeah. you're like, "Oh, you know, '79 Granada." That's because that's yeah, when yeah, the yeah. revolution yeah, was yeah. In, in Granada. Well, that's what I thought, but this is when I wrote it. I really didn't have access to the internet, so it was really '81 that it happened. Okay. And uh, but yeah, so that is yeah. I have all sorts of little things in there that probably people won't pick up on unless they're really nerding out on it, and and all sorts of references and that sort of thing is fun to me. And I think maybe I do that in, in sorry to bother you as well in the movie. Um, But yeah, I, I wanted to make something that was chock full of references and also had a, a larger allegory about uh, the myth of black capitalism. Again, most people will hear it and it's just the story that happens, you know, and, and, and I, I also wanted to, I also wanted to make something that, that got across, um, something emotional. I think starting out like being all about lyrics, you can get really caught into the, uh, you can get really caught into these conventions that are supposed to mean you're a good good lyricist, which are like 
similes and metaphors and being clever. Similes that are usually puns yeah, more than they yeah, are similes. Yeah, yeah. Like they don't really well, bring a lot of clarity. Yeah. It's more just like a cute thing you said. Yeah, exactly. Which can be very cute. Shout out to Chino XL. Yeah. But like, <laughs> yeah, and 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 it's all about being clever, which sub- subtracts you from the emotion of art. You know, like nobody wants a clever painter or a clever. You know, they want something that a a piece that you know, like. They don't want a a sculpture that just makes you laugh oh the dick is in the in the ear that's cool you know they want something that is, is that, that somebody in art school their... is writing that down real quick <laughs> put in yeah yeah, yeah they, you know so this was kind of an exercise at trying to figure out a story that could move me enough to translate that onto paper and pin and into a song uh, to, to translate an emotion in there. And, and I think this was like the beginning of me being able to do that, which then, then did change my songwriting style uh, to the chagrin of some of my fans and, you know, but the, to the delight of some people that became fans after that. I think it's also a hip hop record by a man about women that that feels very full in the way that it embraces the problematic relationships between women and exploitative systems and also uh, men who participate in those exploitative systems in in a way that's much fuller than, you know, there are a lot of hip-hop records by dudes about women are either misogynist or they're, I love my mom. Yeah. Like yeah, great. This, like this we all about, love our mom, and yeah. I've, I've honestly I've enjoyed hip hop songs of both of those yeah. types. I love but... your mom too. I, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, my mom's great. <laughs> she, everybody loves. She's a teacher, and yeah, everyone seems to love her. Yeah, <laughs> but like that, I I I feel like from listening to the song, that was a choice you made that you that you as a dude wanted to make a song about women that was richer than some of the other songs about women that were out yeah, there. Yeah, I think that, uh, well, I didn't c- approach it from that standpoint, but I guess my th- th- my standpoint is that sexism and patriarchy affect women the most, but oppressing women makes men's life worse as well. Like, what effect does living in a world like that have on you, on your personality, on your soul? Um I'm saying that you living in a world where masculinity is defined by oppressing women. Violence and dominance. And- yeah, is is not a full world and uh, you kill part of yourself. And and, and so that was the, the point of it is that it's not we shouldn't just be against these things because um, we're against the oppression of women, we should also be against them because we want to live life to its fullest and be as free as possible. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Boots Riley fronts the rap group The Coup. He also wrote and directed the film Sorry to Bother You. What was it like for you when, as the years went by, and The Coup was in, in many ways what you would call a band, 
but it was also a hip hop group, which is to say that initially it was the three of you. It was yeah. uh, Pam the Funkstress, DJing, E-Rock, and you emceeing. Yeah. And, you know, after a few years, E-Rock left and went and got a job. Um, I remember, I don't, I don't know if this is actually true, but I remember that I feel like it, everybody would say, oh yeah, he works at FedEx now. No, he's, he became a longshoreman. Oh, there Which you go. So that's a good pays, job. Yeah, it's like a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, that's like, a dude. I was about to say FedEx is a good job because I had an aunt that, that yeah, yeah, did great no. working at FedEx. But uh, the confusion is, is that he and I met while working at UPS. Oh, okay, there we go. It was me, him, and Spice One loading up. That's a the that's planes. a pretty killer lineup. <laughs> yeah, and we would hide from the managers in the bellies of the planes and rap. So. He left the group after a couple of years, and then after many years, she has since passed away, but after many years, Pam the Funkstress, your DJ, essentially left the group to have a job, um, to run a yeah. business. She was a, yeah, she a catering was, business. What it was is she was always, she always was running a business. She, was, she, she bought the, the place that she was working for. Um, she worked out a deal with them and bought it in like 98. So she was already doing that for a while, but her business paid way more than going out on tour with us. And she tried to, to, uh, go out on tour with us and let a family member run it while we were on tour. And she almost lost the business. So she was like, I'm not doing that again. So what was it like to you to think I'm, you've always had these big dreams about, what the coup is more than just a band i think you know you've always seen it as a way to communicate a message and move a movement yeah um what was it like to you to lose these these friends in this effort to reasons that were very reasonable reasons like yeah. not reasons that you could object to yeah no i mean with iraq it just totally made sense. It wasn't, it didn't feel like a knock or a blow and, you know, I still communicate with Iraq. Um, and, uh, you know, matter of fact, we did a lot of work with the longshoremen during the Occupy movement. Um, and, uh, you know, he always was a reluctant member in the first place because he basically, he was my friend from UPS and one day, New Year's Eve, Going into 1991, I was like, F it. whoever, what, whatever studio is open tomorrow um, that will answer the phone on New Year's Eve and they're open tomorrow, I'm taking my money and I'm making this uh, music that I said I was going to make. And got the guy to answer the phone and then I realized I didn't have, I only had enough to pay for the studio, didn't have even bus fare after that. And so I called my friend E-Rock up who had a car. <laughs> and, you know, because at the time I was driving this, get this moped and so I, was, I had to bring records to the studio. There was no, you know. And uh, so he, he came and on the way there, I was like, man, you should be in the group too. And uh, he was like, okay. And, um, and that's how he got in the group. And throughout the whole time, he was just kind of like, you know, like, okay, I guess this is what we're doing. But so it was a lot easier for him to do something else. And, uh, and you, but you and Pam had been you, partners for oh, yeah, 20 yeah, yeah. years. I mean, I think as far as just talking about the impact of 
not working with different people. Um, I think that I'm so stuck on getting the next thing done that it just goes immediately in a problem solving mode. I'm not like, I'm, I'm not really mourning the past of what happened. I'm more like, okay, this is how we're going to have to get this next thing done. And, you know, um, just the way that we worked uh, a lot of times was that I'd do an album and Pam would come in at the end and lay the scratches down. And so it more, it definitely was a change in kind of the feeling of who we were and who we like kind of identified as. Um, yeah, I think that, and I think there's something about that in life too. Like you, you just keep pushing and you have all this work to do and you, you, you don't really have time to, you know, maintain friendships or, you know, or uh, be with family enough. And there's all of this stuff. And so I've, live this life of of doing that um like decades go past and you're just working to try to make this thing happen and and that's kind of maybe why the coup has like we never got hooked in nostalgia because it would be easy like there's a lot of groups that came out when we did that are just touring based on we're from the 90s you like the 90s now you know what i'm saying and I never was uh, interested in doing that because because we never blew up. I knew that maybe blowing up was on the horizon and, you know, didn't pay attention to what people said about this or that. And so my music was always about here and now and our sets were always about here and now. We weren't like, here's the songs, you know, we were like, we got this new you're going to love, you know. And uh, it was more like, okay, these are the factors we're dealing with. We're we're going on. It wasn't really like a sentimental connection to what I thought the coup was. You know, there was like it's a, like people come up to me with tattoos of the coup logo. I mean, it's cool, and but they're often like, uh, "Where's yours?" Obviously, you have one. I'm like. <laughs> You know, I'm not that committed to this group. I don't know. You know, who knows what's going to happen. only 25 years. <laughs> you know, yeah. 27 years. You know, yeah, yeah. You must have had to think about what the group meant in a retrospective way when Pam got sick. Oh, yeah. Because you were, you know, because you were still the public figure in the group. Mm-hmm. You were kind of the conduit of information about her illness when, yeah. when she was really sick. And I imagine that you must have absorbed a lot of stories about the meaning of her work to people and, and by extension, your work to people. Yeah. I, um. It's hard for it's not uh, it's hard for me to feel like wow I really did that or anything like that about the stuff that I've done because the goal of the movement that I want to see is so much greater than people liking the music you know like for me it's like check good 
now there's this other thing. So emotionally, I'm glad that people connected to the music and it means a lot to me. But it's not in a way that you would think would uh, would be satisfying. Like, Do you let yourself feel satisfied about anything? Um, no, I don't think I do. I just, you Cause, know. Because you're in middle age. You're allowed to be happy about some things yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. It's hard. It's hard for me to. I don't. I, I have n- never taken a vacation. Um, I've been a lot of places and had a lot of fun, but it's always the only way I can have fun is if there's some reason that I'm there, some reason that I'm doing it. And I think you know that's valid. Like you want. There's some people who you know maybe work a tech job in which that their job was doing art and engaging with people in different places. And so my my work is not, I'm not lifting boxes or anything like that. But, you know, so there is something to be said for that. Um, but I think being on stage and showing this movie, I sit through a lot of screenings of the movie and seeing people and, and sometimes, uh, you know, I'll get asked, oh, are you going to sit through the screening? I'm like, oh, hell yeah, people are, this is, my work and I get to see people interacting with it at those moments. uh, Those that feels like the closest to satisfaction. Oh, this worked. Or even when it's like not working or something like that, it's, it feels like in in, an engagement and that that's the, the closest thing that I feel to satisfaction. We'll finish up my interview with Boots Riley when we return from a break. He'll tell me that even though he advocates for change in all of his creative work, he doesn't think that art alone can start a revolution. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. The coronavirus pandemic is changing everything really fast. So we have created a podcast where you can hear conversations and stories from NPR journalists who are covering the pandemic, the public health fight against it, and how the world is coping. I'm your host, Kelly McEvers. Listen and subscribe to Coronavirus Daily from NPR. We are the host of My Brother, My Brother, Me, and now nearly 10 years into our podcast, the secret can be revealed. All the clues are in place, and the world's greatest treasure hunt can now begin. Embedded in each episode of My Brother, My Brother, and Me is a micro clue that will lead you to 14 precious gemstones all around this big, beautiful blue world of ours. So start coming through the episodes. Uh, let's say starting at episode 101 on. Yeah, the early episodes are pretty problematic, so there's no clues in those episodes no no not at all the better ones the good ones clues ahoy listen to every episode repeatedly in sequence laugh if you must but mainly get all the great clues my brother my brother me it's an advice show kind of but a treasure hunt mainly anywhere you find podcasts or treasure maps my brother my brother me the hunt is on it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne We're listening to my conversation with the great Boots Riley. He wrote and directed the film Sorry to Bother You. It's an absurd, brilliant story about telemarketing, capitalism, monsters, and more. He also fronts the legendary Bay Area rap group, The Coup. Let's get back into our conversation. You talked about the way that in your lyrics you tried to have emotional emotional connections to people's problems in the world yeah and i think that you're as as good as anyone there is at 
uh, drawing connections between kind of real human stories and problematic systems. And a song that, you know, another one on the very short list of rap songs that make Jesse cry. Um, like, it's a real, sh- I, I've loved him all my whole life. And like, it's a real short list. There's a lot more songs that make me want to party. Um, is a, a song called Underdogs um, that's from that same record, 1998. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, uh, let's, let's take a listen to it. There's certain tricks of the trade to try to hold you feet. Like taking Tupperware to win all you can eat. Returning you ish for news saying you lost your receipt. And writing four-figure checks when your accounts deplete. Then all your problems pile up about a mile up. Thinking about a partner you could dial up to help you out the foul stuff. Whole family sleeping on the food time while you clipping coupons. Eating salad trying to get full off the crew. What's interesting to me is you have these songs that are so specific and so humane but very rarely especially for an MC but for a songwriter in general very rarely are you writing about yourself from a first person perspective yeah um it's interesting because that one to a certain extent was i started that song i have a i had a friend uh, who actually appeared on a couple coup albums. Uh, he went by the name Point Blank Range. And uh, he died recently, like a couple years ago. But um, something had happened where he had kind of scammed my father out of a couple hundred dollars. And this was somebody that we had helped a lot, like, you know, not only with his music and stuff like that. And... um. You know, I started out writing, like, a diss song, like, about it. And just while writing that, thinking about his life, this is a guy who had, when he was a kid, got burned and covered in burns and lived, uh, you know, it's hard to even talk about it. But um, anyway, uh, this is a song that came out of that. And the reason that it's hard is because he died recently. And uh, he kind of uh, lived hustling and sometimes uh, betrayed his uh, friends. And this was uh, me writing a song that came from understand an understanding of a whole situation that he was in and uh, that came first from a point of disgust and uh, ended up with this this song so definitely is really personal and uh, is one of the only songs that I do acapella so and I had actually forgot about the origin of it until like years and years later. That you had been feeling this anger towards this friend who had stuck it to your dad and that that had led you to think about those circumstances that you recognized. Yeah, definitely.
Um, and he was a really good rapper, too. He's uh, on the cool song Kill My Landlord. He's on, uh, what's that other one? Interrogation. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Here with me now is Boots Riley. So in, in the movie, you have two main characters, one of whom is going through extraordinary uh, financial success as a salesman and has to deal with the implications of that for his community, his peer group, the labor movement that he leaves behind as he becomes more and more rich and also what he's selling. And an artist who is his girlfriend who is dealing with her feelings about um, the value of what she does and dealing with, you know, some there's some ambivalence in the film about, like, what is the impact and value of art as well. Um, was that something that you just... Were those ideas just ones that you had been working in your hands like smoothing a river those are the ideas that i'm struggling with all the time you know and to a certain extent every you know there's stevie in place squeeze who's a union organizer and uh jermaine fowler plays sal who's kind of like always making light of things um and uh yeah it's they're all like parts of me and the problems that they're dealing with are ones that I'm always questioning myself about. And is this effective? How do I make it more effective? And on the Cassius side, what does it all mean? What is? What am I? Um, how do I make use of this time that I'm here? How do I make it important? And uh, yeah, so all of these are are things that are running through my mind at all times. That's a lot of load to bear. I mean, that's something that I personally struggle with too. And I try and check myself once in a while and say like, it is okay to like leave the world better than you found it. You don't have to transform the world personally. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like maybe it's okay that like, you know, I do a really dumb comedy show that's not about anything, right? Mm. On that really dumb comedy show that's not about anything, I do have to occasionally remind myself, like, once in a while somebody is really sick or their mom is really sick mm-hmm. and they're driving home and they you know, send me an email and they say, I just wanted to have something that made me feel nice yeah. for 20 minutes. Um, I kind of have to remind myself. But, like, if you are always looking at a, the top of the mountain, changing the world, which I know you believe really strongly in changing the world. Yeah. Um, you know, revolution has always been your explicit goal, right? A, a, yeah. a monumental change. Yep. Uh, it, that's a lot to carry as a person. Well, yeah, and the problem is is that no one person is supposed to carry it. And the, uh, that's the reason for organizations is because... You're, no one is going to change anything on their own, which is kind of the fallacy about art. Is like, I can make this thing that will change the world. It's not even effective if you're not connected with people that are doing things that cause a material change in the distribution of wealth, honestly. 
you know, this idea that's out there of like, just let your voice be heard and that's enough um, is also also leads to this immense pressure on one person. Like, because, yes, individually, we're not effective at doing anything really like we really can't even feed ourselves individually. <laughs> you know, it takes a lot of people to get food onto our plate, you know, so changing the world. And by that, I mean making a world in which, and in my mind, this is what I'm talking about, making a world in which the people democratically control the wealth that we create with our labor. Making a world in that way is not something that's going to happen from one artist saying the right thing. I think that the key is, and, and, and often that's how activism is approached as well. It's like, there's a thing, let's go to it. There's this other thing, let's go to it. Let's... And and it's uh, people not necessarily having the time and organizations not approaching it from the sense of building an organization that can help each other to do these things. And, and, and so, yeah, um, some of those pressures and some of those worries come from the amount of work that it takes for me to make things and my my, uh, you know, I, I don't write very fast. I don't, you know, do anything very fast. So my my way of working, if I'm going to actually produce these pieces of art, is one that does not really allow me to do a lot else, which is why the times when I've gotten involved in stuff, I've had to quit doing music or doing art of any kind. Um that you know so it ends up being isolating not only politically but with family and friends because it takes a lot more work and i wouldn't be doing it if i only you know if i only allotted eight hours a day or 10 hours a day to doing it i'm always working i'm always feeling like you know it, it, one reason i like movies is because i can it's finally escape and be okay with not, not what, what, with the things that I'm not getting done right now. Not that, uh, <laughs> not that your movie allows for that much escape. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, you really, uh, uh, you really keep people on target. Yeah. Well, I, I also, with the tonal evolution of the film. Exactly. Yeah. I wanted to make a movie that kept you engaged, not like, you know, there are definitely movies where you can, where you know the structure and they're, good movies partially because you know the structure and the beats within what the director is dancing in and you can see what they do with that but this is one where i think the structure uh hopes to keep you engaged and on your toes you're not going to think oh right about here is where i can go to the bathroom you're you're going to understand from it like you might go to the bathroom and you're going to miss a very good part of this so go to the bathroom before you see the movie <laughs> <laughs> and, and and yeah and 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 so i wanted to keep people engaged with that to to give that feeling of that that hopefully life brings and i know i've kind of been painting more of a bleaker picture of life in this interview but um 
you know, that, that excitement. Well, it's excitement. a very joyful movie. I mean, it's about yeah. really scary things about the world, but it's a joyful film. Yeah. Boots, I got to tell you this, you know, as a guy who made art that was really important to me as a teenager, um, when you found a new lane, you know, nothing's more important than the art that was important to you as a teenager. And when you found a new lane, I was like, uh-oh, oh, no, this guy I admire is going to do something I really don't like, and it's really going to bum me out. <laughs> like and, Graffiti Bridge. <laughs> absolutely. And I... I went to your movie and man, did it deliver! So uh, I am. I feel like uh, I feel like proud of you for blossoming you. in this new medium, and I'm I'm so glad that you took the time to come back and be on the show. It's nice to see you again. Thank you, man. Thanks a lot. Glad you liked it. Boots Riley, sorry to bother you. Is a great film, an instant classic. It's streaming right now on Hulu. It's available to rent or buy pretty much anywhere else. I can't recommend it highly enough. It is a mind blower. It is hilarious and insightful and at times kind of terrifying. It's a great movie. If you haven't checked out The Coup before, maybe start with their album from 1998, Steal This Album. I might be recommending that only because it's the one that I started with when I was 17, but is a truly exceptional record featuring Me and Jesus the Pimp, uh, the story song that we talked about in this conversation that I think is maybe the best story song in hip-hop history. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is currently being produced out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around Los Angeles, California. Uh, This is normally where we would do an update on what's going on in MacArthur Park, but um, none of us have been to MacArthur Park this week. So an update on what's going on in my house. Uh, My son, Curtis, woke us up at 5.30 in the morning the other day to tell us uh, about a dream he had about his brother, Oscar. He said, Mommy, I have a sad feeling. I had a dream, and Oscar was wearing a helmet that was a sandwich. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And we have decades of uh, interviews in our archives. If you, if you, need, a, if you need a friend because you're self-isolating uh, this week, uh, why not go to MaximumFun.org and scroll through the Bullseye page or uh, open up Bullseye in your favorite podcast app and take a look for a name that jumps out at you. Uh, if you like this interview with Boots Riley of The Coup, he's been on before. Um, I do love Boots and love The Coup. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can keep up with the show there. And know that uh, we at Bullseye are are thinking of you. It's tough times out there, and uh, our our hearts are are with all of you. And we're grateful that we're able to connect with you in this unusual way. Anyway, I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 